Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 28. It's with some trepidation that I've decided to eventually cover the Pan Am Flight 103 disaster over Lockerbie in Scotland in 1988, which killed 259 passengers and crew, as well as 11 people on the ground. Very few aviators or people interested in aviation are not aware of what happened to the Boeing 747 when a bomb loaded on board with other luggage blew up over Scotland. The shocking truths that were unearthed afterwards changed aviation forever. But Pan Am's lax security created a hole that the terrorists exploited. Two listeners in particular have prompted this episode, including Alison, who was an eight-year-old living in Lockerbie when the plane came down. She has told me how the small community banded together despite their own loss and then extended their arms to help families of the victims. There is a great deal to cover, so I'm going to dive straight in, starting with the latest developments first. In December 2020, the United States announced charges against the Libyans suspected of making the bomb that blew up the Boeing over Lockerbie. Abu Aguila Mohammed Massoud was charged with terrorism-related crimes 32 years after the atrocity. 179 Americans died in Lockerbie, and Washington has been on the trail of the killers who were linked to Libyan intelligence ever since. Massoud is the third person accused of involvement, and he is believed to have carried the bomb from Libya to Malta in a suitcase and helped set the timer. Massoud also apparently carried out the attack on the orders of late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, although Gaddafi always denied that. Of course, Gaddafi's own luck ran out during the Arab Spring in 2011 when he was deposed, bayoneted, and then shot. Live by the sword, die by the sword, they say. Unfortunately, he took many secrets to the grave with him. Ironically, controversial American Attorney General Bill Barr made the announcement regarding Massoud's charges. I say ironic because 29 years earlier, he had announced the first series of charges against other suspects linked to Lockerbie while he was acting U.S. Attorney General in George Bush Sr.'s administration. Then, in January 2021, a Scottish court rejected an appeal to overturn the conviction of Abdul Basset al-Magrahi, an intelligence officer who was dying of prostate cancer and who had been jailed for life for bombing the airliner. But he died in 2012 and his family are still trying to clear his name. In March 2020, an independent Scottish review ruled that his family could launch a third appeal due to a possible miscarriage of justice. But finally, in January last year, five judges at the Court of Criminal Appeal in Scotland rejected the review. Having read the review, I'm not surprised. Let's just say the review was mired in conspiracy theory mumbo-jumbo and confused legal logic. The five judges threw it out because, in a nutshell, the review was rubbish. Then, in November 2021, more news emerged. That's when Libya's Foreign Minister Najla El Magush said her country would work with the U.S. on extraditing Aguila Mohammed Massoud. She said the Libyan government understands the pain and sadness of the victims' families and needs to respect the laws. The U.S. and Libya were collaborating on the case, she said, and it was progressing. Massoud, by the way, is currently in a Libyan prison, having been convicted on unrelated charges. Now he's also facing terror charges in the U.S. But wait, things were not clear-cut. A couple of months after agreeing to help America, Najah Mangus retracted her comments and denied she'd actually agreed to help extradite Massoud. She was then suspended from her duties, and now we await further information about Massoud's extradition. 
And so let's go to the salient facts of Lockerbie, because this case is not closed. Everything revolves around a custom suitcase and the failures of the security system. I'll deal with that later. This episode is part aviation, part gumshoe reportage. So, on 21st of December 1988, a brown Samsonite suitcase with an improvised explosive device or IED was entered into the Frankfurt Airport automatic baggage distribution system originating from Malta. Papa Alpha Alpha 103 Alpha would only depart in four hours, so the suitcase, along with other luggage, was retained at Frankfurt Airport automatic baggage system until it discharged all the bags of Papa Alpha Alpha 103 Alpha at gate 46 later that day. The brown Samsonite suitcase, together with other luggage, was driven from gate 46 to gate 44 for x-ray, then delivered to Papa Alpha Alpha 103 Alpha, a feeder flight and placed in the hold of a Boeing 727. None of the bags were searched directly, nor were they checked against the passenger list. The Samsonite bag was transferred through the baggage facilities at Heathrow Airport from PAA-103A, the Boeing 727, onto PAA-103, a Pan Am Boeing 747, to New York. Waiting on board the plane was the crew. 55-year-old Captain James Macquarie had been at Pan Am since 1964 and had almost 11,000 flight hours, 4,000 of them on a Boeing 747. And before that, Macquarie had served three years in the U.S. Navy, and five years in the Massachusetts Air National Guard. First Officer Raymond Wagner was 52 and had flown with Pan Am since 1966. He had 5,500 hours on the Boeing 747 and a total of nearly 12,000 hours flight time. These were some of the most highly experienced pilots in the air anywhere in the world that night. Also on board as crew, 46-year-old flight engineer Jerry Averett, who joined Pan Am in 1980 after 13 years with National Airlines, he had more than 8,000 hours of flying time, nearly 500 hours on the Boeing 747. There were also 13 cabin crew members. Six became naturalized U.S. citizens while working for Pan Am. They were based at Heathrow. Their experience as cabin crew ranged from 9 months to 28 years. While the passengers settled in, the baggage was finalized, including a ULD-3 container in the forward cargo hold containing a brown Samsonite suitcase. It was on the left side of the aircraft, forward of the wing. The Boeing took off at around 1800 hours 20. Just before 7pm, the pilots radioed Shanwick Oceanic Area Control at Prestwick and crossed the coast at 1900 hours 02 UTC. The Boeing was squawking 0357. The clipper made of the seas, as the 747 was called, was flying at 31,000 feet on a heading of 316 magnetic at a speed of 313 knots, or 306 miles per hour, calibrated airspeed, and its ground speed was around 803 kilometers per hour, or around 434 knots. At 1900 hours, 2 minutes and 44 seconds, Shanwick controllers transmitted the oceanic route clearance, but the aircraft did not acknowledge this message. Clipper made of the seas squawk, then flickered off the radar screen and transponder pickups. Air traffic control tried to make contact with the flight, no response. Five radar echoes then began to fan out instead of one. A loud noise was picked up on the CVR, which was recovered later, and the time comparison with the radar returns showed that eight seconds after the explosion, the wreckage had spread across a one nautical mile area. The bomb had detonated a hole in the side of the luggage container near the left side of the aircraft and punctured the fuselage. The pressure wave met the resistance of the adjacent bags in that container 
then reverberated backward to the open air holes and through the skin of the aircraft. It was the second wave that opened the aircraft up like a zipper. The forward part of the Boeing, the flight deck and part of the first class section, separated from the rest of the structure less than three seconds after the detonation. The forward section swung around to the right and fell away over the right wing. Other parts of the aircraft began to separate into pieces and, along with its passengers and crew, fell to the ground. The captain, the first officer, flight engineer, a flight attendant and several first-class passengers were found still strapped in their seats inside the nose section when it crashed in Tundagoth, which is around three kilometres southeast of Lockerbie. Remarkably, one of the flight attendants was found alive by a farmer's wife, but she died before help arrived. Some passengers may have remained alive briefly after impact. A pathologist's report concluded at least two of these passengers might have survived had help arrived sooner. But, as one of the listeners has pointed out to me recently, Lockerbie is in a fairly isolated area. It was a few hours before they could reach all the plane parts. 35 of the passengers were students from Syracuse University who were returning home for Christmas following a semester at Syracuse's London and European campuses. Many of their bodies were found at Rosebank Crescent, half a mile from Sherwood Crescent in the town. Many of these students were sitting close to the rear fuselage of the plane and the tail section, which destroyed one of the houses of Rosebank Crescent. It was the home of Lockerbie resident Ella Ramsden who survived. The bodies of two of these students were never recovered. Also on board was Deputy CIA Beirut Station Chief Matthew Gannon, as well as a group of U.S. intelligence specialists. The usual lunatic fringe conspiracy theories were trotted out once this emerged, but it was correlation, not causation, I'm afraid. This catches amateurs every time. Correlations or red herrings, as they're known, is where the powerless play. They're the witch-burning mob of the 21st century, and social media is their drug of choice. Also on board, 50-year-old UN Commissioner for Namibia, Bernd Carlson, Volkswagen Executive James Fuller, and Irish Olympic sailor Peter Dix. Paul Jeffries of the band Cockney Rebel and his wife Rachel were also on board, and they were on honeymoon to the US. Eleven Lockerbie residents were killed when the wing section hit a house at 13 Sherwood Crescent at more than 800 kilometers per hour and then exploded, creating a crater 47 meters long and more than 10 meters deep. Two people in the house died instantly. A family of four was killed at 15 Sherwood Crescent, while a couple and their daughter died at 16 Sherwood Crescent. Their son was next door repairing his sister's bicycle and saw the fireball engulf his home. A horrible memory for the poor lad. And he was to die in 2000 after a drinking binge hit by a train. The fireball shot 300 feet into the air, spreading towards the nearby A47 dual carriageway, damaging cars. Some drivers had to swerve to avoid the wreckage. Further along Sherwood Crescent, a vast lump of concrete thrown up by the blast crashed through the roof of Sarah Lawson's house and onto the chair she'd been sitting in seconds before. Two widows, 81 and 82 years old, also died at Sherwood Crescent, and most bodies of those who perished on the ground were never recovered. The intensity of the fire destroyed everything. Bodies started to fall on Lockerbie. One resident ran out of her house and two young women dropped out of the sky and landed in the street in front of her. Most of the passengers and crew were dead before they hit the ground. The ground search began before dark the next day, with police and residents walking the fields. 
Two farmers' sons spotted a long piece of metal with a box attached to it at 10 hours 30. On its side, they read, Data Reproducer 1972. It was the digital flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder of Pan Am 103. Trails of wreckage spread from Lockerbie East towards the coast. An area of 845 square miles was subsequently searched, and the teams were told that if it's not growing in the ground, recover it. There were 211 tons of passengers, crew, cargo, mail, aircraft, and other contents to be recovered. 107 tons was the fuel load which burned off in the accident. Allison from Lockerbie, one of my listeners, says for months afterwards, everything around the town smelt of jet fuel. Many of the passengers' relatives, most of them from the U.S., arrived at Lockerbie within days to identify the dead. Volunteers from Lockerbie set up canteens which stayed open 24 hours a day and offered relatives, soldiers, police officers, and social workers free sandwiches, hot meals, beverages, and sometimes counselling. The Lockerbians also washed, dried, and ironed every piece of clothing that was found once the police had determined they were of no forensic value, so as many items as possible could be returned to the relatives. As the investigators shipped through the wreckage, they realised in a very short time that it was a murder investigation. Forensic examination revealed chemicals found in Semtex. It was known that a general command cell of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine had been operating in Germany before the bombing of Pan Am 103. In October 1988, for example, German police had raided the PFLP and found weapons and explosives, and something even more important, a boombox or radio cassette player, as we used to call them. The boombox was a Toshiba radio cassette recorder model number Romeo 0435 Delta, and crucially, the Germans discovered an improvised explosive device inside with an extremely interesting timing mechanism. The trigger for the IED was a barometric device which activated at a certain altitude and was used by the terrorists in planes to avoid premature explosions. The Germans recognized this and put out a warning that they believed a plane was the target considering the pressure-sensitive trigger they'd found. As you'll hear in a moment, this warning went virtually unheeded by Pan Am. When scientists found a fragment of a printed circuit board on part of the luggage container from Pan Am 103 into which the explosive device had been loaded, these inquiries took on a greater significance. Here, a resident of Morpeth in Northumberland was crucial. She had recovered the fragment of an instruction manual for a Toshiba RTSF-16 radio cassette recorder, along with other debris near her house. That was an incredible 32 miles away east of Lockerbie as the crow flies. The wind had blown this way off track from 31,000 feet. Meanwhile, the UK's Royal Armament Research and Development Establishment hunted for the manufacturer of the circuit board from the Toshiba radio cassette recorder. While the radio was a different model from the German terror cell, the bomb design was a match. Radio cassette recorder fragments were also recovered from clothing damaged by explosives, which were believed to be close to the IED. And here, the forensic examination of the clothing produced one of the most important pieces of evidence. A fragment of printed circuit board was found in a grey shirt made by slalom, and the forensic scientists believed the shirt was probably in the same suitcase as the bomb. It was now clear that an explosive device had been placed aboard the aircraft inside a Toshiba radio cassette. Fifty-six pieces of blast-damaged suitcase had been recovered, and it was identified as an antique copper 26-inch Samsonite Silhouette 4000. It was a hard-shell suitcase. That was the first mistake the bombers made. 
The second was their choice of trousers. A fragment from a pair bearing the brand name Yorkie and the number 1705 was also recovered. Inquiries revealed that the Yorkie clothing company was based in Malta. The factory in Malta manufactured this brand of clothing exclusively and the owners said the number 1705 was an order number from a local retail outlet known as Mary's House in the Maltese town of Slima. Things were accelerating. Anthony Gauci of the family-owned retail business in Malta told officers that he could recall selling the trousers and other clothing to a Libyan on or about Wednesday the 7th of December 1988, two weeks before Pan Am Flight 103 was destroyed. Gauci also provided details of other clothing purchased by the Libyan which matched the blast-damaged clothing recovered at Lockerbie, including the grey slalom shirt mentioned before. He also sold an umbrella to the same man and an umbrella of the make was recovered at Lockerbie. Forensic scientists examined it and they discovered it had also been in close proximity to the explosion. This was the first time that the connection was made between a Libyan citizen and the bombing of Pan Am 103. Meanwhile, the Germans provided a computer printout from the baggage handling system at Frankfurt Airport. It was a record of the bags loaded onto Pan Am 103A on the 21st of December 1988. Remember, one of the feeder flights for Pan Am 103. This printout showed that a bag was accepted into the baggage conveyance system at 7 minutes past 1 p.m. and had been coded for that flight at Station 206. An examination of the worksheet for coding Station 206 showed that at 7 minutes past 1 on the 21st of December 1988, the workers were coding bags from flight KM180 Malta to Frankfurt. But during the inquiries, they found out that there were no passengers from the Air Malta flight that transferred to the Pan Am 103A, nor did any of the passengers transfer luggage onwards. This meant that an unaccompanied bag had somehow been transported from Malta via Frankfurt to London. Investigators now knew that Pan Am Flight 103 had been destroyed by an improvised explosive device carried in a Toshiba radio cassette recorder placed inside a Samsonite suitcase along with clothing purchased in Malta probably by a Libyan man on Wednesday the 7th December 1988. Suddenly the investigation shifted to Togo and Senegal in West Africa. The CIA and FBI had linked a fragment of the circuit board to an explosive timer called an MST-13. In February 1988, a Senegalese national was arrested at Dakar airport together with two members of the Libyan intelligence service when an MST-13 timer was recovered at the airport amongst the weapons and explosives. While the two Libyans were released later from custody by the Senegalese, the timer was found to be manufactured in Switzerland by a company called Mibo. Swiss nationals Erwin Meister and Edwin Bollier owned the company and regularly did business with Libya, and it was shown later that these particular timers were produced exclusively for the Libyan security service. The evidence against the Libyans began to increase exponentially. The Swiss businessman received an order for 20 MST-13 timers in December 1988 and helped train Libyan personnel at a training camp in the Sabah Desert. The Swiss said Abdel Basat Ali Mohammed Al-Magrahi and Badri Hassan were partners in the company ASH, which rented offices from Mibu in Zurich. The Swiss said one of these men, Abdel Basit Ali Mohammed Al-Magrahi, was a major in the Libyan security service. Megrahi had been trained as a flight dispatcher with Libyan Arab Airlines, and by 1985 he was head of the airline security section of the Libyan External Security Organization. The Maltese shop owner identified him 
as the man who bought the clothes from his shop on the 7th December 1988. The focus of the search swung to Makrai. His movements on the 21st of December were tracked by examining immigration cards and hotel registrations. Then the CIA discovered that Megrahi used a pseudonym, Ahmed Khalifa Abdusamat. He had stayed at Malta Holiday Inn on 21st December 1988 and then left for Tripoli on the evening of the 21st December. He had checked out of the Holiday Inn at 11 minutes past 7 on the morning of the 21st of December 1988 and had made a telephone call from his room to 414570 local which was connected to a flat rented by Al-Amin Khalifa Fima in Malta. Fima was the station manager for Libyan Arab Airlines at Luka Airport in Malta, and during further investigation, Maltese police found a 1988 diary and a security pass for Luka Airport at Fima's home. The diary was the smoking gun. Several references related to Megrahi were found. On 15th of December 1988, Fima had written, take tags from Maltese airline. The word tags were underlined twice. He wrote in the notes section of the diary, bring the tags from the airport. Because of this evidence, FEMA became a suspect. A close examination of his movements revealed that on the 20th of December 1988, he travelled from Tripoli to Malta on the same flight together with Magrai, who was travelling as Ahmed Khalifa Abduzamat. It was now believed that he had used these baggage tags to smuggle the bomb aboard the flight from Malta. On the 13th of November 1991, after a review of all the evidence, a warrant was subsequently granted at Dumfries Sheriff Court for the arrest of Abdelbasit Ali Mohamed al-Magrahi and al-Amin Khalif Fima on charges of murder, conspiracy to murder and a contravention of the Aviation Security Act of 1982. But Libya refused to hand over the two accused for trial. An agreement was eventually reached for the trial to take place on neutral territory under the laws of Scotland, and Holland was chosen. A former American Air Force base at Kampf van Zeist near Susterberg was identified as the site for the Scottish court, and Megrahi and Fima were formally arrested on the 5th of April 1991. An identification parade was held at Kampf van Zeist for Megrahi on the 13th of April. Maltese clothing shop owner Anthony Gauci identified Megrahi as the person who had purchased the clothing from his shop. Megrahi's link to the Libyan intelligence was proven when it was shown that the country's passport agency had issued a passport in the name of Ahmed Khalifa Abdusumat on the 15th of August 1987 in response to a letter from the Libyan intelligence service. This was incriminating evidence against Megrahi and the coded passport in the name of Ahmed Khalifa Abdusumat was held by Megrahi. It was also confirmed that he used this passport on the 20th of December 1988 to travel to Malta together with FEMA and that the passport was used several times in 1987, but only once in 1988. Eventually, airport manager FEMA was acquitted on the charges and returned to Tripoli on 31st of January 2001. Megrahi, however, was sentenced to life in prison. Then, as you heard earlier, in 2009, Scotland's government released Megrahi because he had terminal prostate cancer. When he stepped off the plane in Tripoli, Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi hugged him like a brother. Gaddafi was also effusive in his thanks to London for helping secure the release, something that enraged victims' families. London denied this, but there's no denying that Gordon Brown's cabinet had interfered. Cabinet Secretary O'Donnell's report of 2011 
showed that the British government pushed through a ratification of a prisoner transfer agreement with Libya while briefing Gaddafi's people on how they could apply for al-Megrahi's transfer under that agreement. So, let's look at the many, many lessons learned from Lockerbie. A special session of the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO Council, was held in February 1989. The idea of improving airport security is number one on the list. ICAO organizations and powers were strengthened after this conference and training rehashed. ICAO also implemented what's known as the Convention on Marking Plastic Explosives. This lays out the rules for countries manufacturing explosives to mark them chemically in order for a bomb to be detected by sniffer dogs and chemical analysis devices. Libya was forced to admit responsibility for the Lockerbie attack and had to pay compensation to the families of the victims. In 2008, Libyan dictator Gaddafi paid out compensation of more than $2.7 billion for the families of the Lockerbie victims. Furthermore, families have been lobbying for legislation and policy changes. The Aviation Disaster Family Assistance Act and the Foreign Air Carrier Family Support Act were enacted in 1996-1997. That has improved compensation for the family of plane crashes. Explosive detection and tracing systems were improved and huge amounts have been spent on dealing with what is known as artful concealment used by the Lockerbie terrorists. Cargo security was amended by new standards for screening and practices based on the known and unknown shipper concepts. Passenger questioning techniques were changed, including introduction of the famous poster where you're told to look at the items and verbally confirm they're not present in your luggage. 100% baggage screening was launched, whereas before it was a lottery, now 100% of all bags are screened in an automated inline multi-level system. After Lockerbie, there was more effective use of something called bingo cards or base of manual reconciliation procedures. This Automated system now links bags to the port of origin wherever you fly and is harder to hack. Manufacturers of aircraft have also been under pressure to improve tolerances to explosives on planes, but of course, there's a limit here. Then, higher standards of access to restricted areas of airports were introduced with new global rules. Eventually, Pan Am was held accountable for numerous security lapses that ultimately cost the lives of the passengers and crew of Flight 103. It was found guilty of Willful misconduct by failing to prevent a bomb from being smuggled aboard the flight. You see, the FAA regulation required that all U.S. air carriers to physically search all unaccompanied baggage from high-threat airports. This was specifically designed to detect and prevent bombs from getting on U.S. planes, and that followed the June 1985 Air India Flight 182 tragedy that killed 329 over the Atlantic Ocean. The Air India plane was blown up by an unaccompanied bag put aboard by a Sikh terrorist in Vancouver in Canada. This U.S. government security requirement meant loaders had to physically search all unaccompanied baggage on board planes where the passenger was not on board. The baggage was supposed to be located and removed from the aircraft, then physically searched before it could be reboarded without the passenger. These days, the baggage won't be boarded at all without the passenger. It's left in a storage area. In 1988, Pan Am officials thought they'd avoid delays, it would be cheaper, in other words, to examine all interline baggage prior to placing it on their aircraft at Frankfurt and London, then to merely x-ray the bags to speed things up. When Pan Am began x-raying all interline baggage, they discontinued their baggage passenger reconciliation entirely. In an age of aviation terror attacks, Pan Am's executive had opened the door to Libyan intelligence.
By the way, the substitution of x-ray examination for baggage passenger reconciliation violated the FAA regulation, which required that all unaccompanied baggage be physically searched. That's why a U.S. federal court found Pan Am was in contravention of American government regulations and why the federal court found Pan Am guilty of willful misconduct and in violation of U.S. laws implementing the International Warsaw Convention. Harsh stuff. But the litany of shortcuts doesn't end there. By far the most egregious error was by Pan Am and employees at a company called Alert Management at Frankfurt International Airport. The Alert Security Company was a subsidiary of Pan Am and the employee who was operating the Pan Am X-ray only began full X-ray work in late October 1988. He had only received three days of training before being allowed to operate the X-ray unit unsupervised. In the one and a half months, he had managed to X-ray a paltry 350 bags. There are more than that on a normal single Boeing 747 flight, so you can see how erratic the alert management systems were. Pan Am abandoned the FAA requirement to conduct a baggage passenger reconciliation for interline passengers at Heathrow Airport in early 1988 and at Frankfurt in September and October 1988 when they began to X-ray instead. The fact that the Libyan bombers attacked so soon after this is interesting. More testimony followed in a U.S. federal court in 1992 where it was shown that alert management had lied about the level of their security staffing. They were shifting personnel from one point to another to create the impression of higher numbers of staff and Pan Am's security audit did not pick this up. It was picked up by an FAA agent at Frankfurt who conducted a security audit of the entire Pan Am Frankfurt airport operation in October 1988 when he found the weaknesses concerning baggage handling. But his written notes from October 1988 languished on his desk till after the Lockerbie disaster. The FAA agent claimed he was too busy to type it up. Bureaucratic time-wasting is deadly, and this is an example. Had basic security requirements been followed, then the baggage passenger reconciliation would have discovered the brown Samsonite suitcase at either Frankfurt or Heathrow. They would have had to determine which passenger was associated with the bag. Further checking would have revealed that no passenger transfer message or PTM had been received from Air Malta at Frankfurt. Pan Am would have then turned the bag over to German authorities and it would have been isolated. Like all US airlines, Pan Am was supposed to have a highly trained specialist as a ground security coordinator at each airport, ensuring security measures were followed to the T, but the investigation revealed the coordinator was not properly trained. I know this is a bit like being punched by 2020 hindsight observation, but that's what this is all about. Remember, you haven't even heard the most jaw-dropping fact yet. In early December 1988, a caller to the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki had warned that Middle Eastern terrorists were intending to place a bomb on board a U.S. airplane out of Frankfurt sometime in the next two weeks. That warning of a threat was issued to all U.S. carriers by FAA headquarters in Washington, D.C., but the warning did not make it to Pan Am Alert Security Organization at Frankfurt International Airport. So the X-ray operator was not on a heightened state of alert, so to speak. Lockerbie was so extreme, so catastrophic, its effect on aviation continues. The remains of that Boeing are still stored in a secure location in Dumfries in Scotland and is considered evidence in an ongoing criminal investigation. 
Finally, a touch of humanity in this sea of pain and suffering and negativity. Every year, Syracuse University holds a memorial called Remembrance Week to commemorate its 35 lost students on the 21st of December, starting at 1400 hours, 3 minutes local, or 1900 hours, 3 minutes UTC, the time the bomb exploded. The university also awards tuition fees to two students from Lockerbie Academy each year in the form of its Lockerbie Scholarship Outreach to Scotland. And the listener I mentioned earlier, Alison, was one of those who benefited from the exchange program as a Lockerbie resident. I want to say a big thank you to Alison for sharing what is her remarkable story of humanity. It's proof that people who are brought together through adversity and sometimes across oceans form a lifelong bond that is unbreakable. Next episode, we'll go back in time and find out how more than two-thirds of all weather-related aviation crashes have been fatal and why. Until then, aviate, navigate and communicate safely. Goodbye.